It is so good to see you, and it's so good to see people out in the lobby. It's so good to hear kids in the gym. It's so good to see kids in the, in the education wing. It's just been a good thing to be here. It's done my heart good, and it's been good to just worship with you. It's, uh, it's not something I get to do very often, so I am uh, so thankful to you. It's a good thing for Uplift to be back, and I am uh, honored to uh, be up here tonight. So if you could just give the Lord a quick praise for Wednesday nights being back. Yes, it's okay to do that. And you might want to know this too. We are actually recording uh, tonight's message and we'll be recording them throughout the the series. Uh, And we're going to put them on our podcast on Anchor Point. So if you're listening to our podcast, I know this is a future welcome, but welcome. I'm glad you're listening. Um, But it is good. It's good to bring Uplift back and all of our Wednesday night programming. It feels like it's sort of the final piece of this puzzle that we've um, been missing. I'm going to be starting a series here in Uplift called Questioning Jesus. Questioning Jesus. The title of this series, though, might cause a few raised eyebrows because that phrase, that phrase questioning Jesus, can be interpreted in a few different ways. So I want to be clear tonight as we start that we aren't questioning Jesus in the sense that we doubt him or we doubt his divinity or we doubt his resurrection or his return. We are not making light of the claims of his claims and his teachings in the sense that questioning could be doubting. We're not doing that at all. That's not what this series is. Instead, this series is an investigation into the questions that were asked of Jesus in the New Testament. And you know what? There are quite a few of those, and I'm sure you've spotted them if you've read the New Testament. You've seen those, but you've probably never given them much thought. You've probably never seen them in isolation by themselves. And two, if you've been a believer in Jesus for a while, you've probably pretty steadily used what I, what I think is our inductive reasoning when we read about Jesus. In other words, we know the rock-solid specific truths about Jesus. He's the Word of God, the Son of God. He died as a ransom for many. We know that he foretold his death, his resurrection. He foretold his subsequent return. We know these truths. So I think what we've done is that we've actually used the New Testament and those stories to validate the truths that we already know. In other words, details of Jesus' life and his conversations really aren't They're not really dissected much anymore. We just use them to validate what we already know. But in this series, I want us to use some deductive reasoning. And I really want you to assume just for a little while that you you aren't a believer in Jesus, that you're not a follower of Jesus. While you listen to these questions, in fact, I'm going to invite you and I'm going to give you permission to actually listen to these questions as a skeptic as someone who is curious, as someone who may even be a little bit angry with Jesus. And most importantly, I want you to listen to these questions as someone who has asked the very same questions of Jesus, quite possibly, without ever expecting to receive an answer. So we're going to question Jesus together tonight and the next few weeks. And tonight we're going to start with the very first recorded question ever asked of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. This first recorded question actually comes from the Gospel of Mark, which is considered to be the first of the four Gospels ever written, which would then 
by proxy make this question the first recorded question ever asked of Jesus. And here's the question, pretty simple. What do you want with us? What do you want with us, Jesus? This is the question. This question, what do you want with us? This is the question that's asked by the bothered. It's asked by the offended. It's the kind of question that little kids ask their older brothers when their older brothers are being a nuisance. And sometimes it's the other way around. But we ask this question, what do you want with us? We, we ask that question to those who are actively impeding our will. And in Mark, this question was asked by a man possessed by a demon. So let's read this text together. It's from Mark chapter 1, and it's verses 21 through 28. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. They, it starts, and this is Jesus and his new disciples, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an unclean spirit cried out, and here's the question, verse 24, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Verse 25, Jesus said sternly, be quiet, come out of him. The unclean spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to unclean spirits and they obey him. And this is the last verse, verse 28. News about Jesus spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, what an interesting synagogue service. You got the buzz surrounding Jesus and his entourage of disciples. You've got the teachers of the law. They're also known as scribes. They're clearly feeling threatened here. You got a demon-possessed man. What in the world is going on in this place? What transformed this synagogue service from serene to volatile? It's one thing, it's pretty clear. It's Jesus' teaching. Mark actually described Jesus' teaching here as authoritative, as authoritative, and not as the teachers of the law, the scribes, as they were better known. We're going to talk more about them in just a minute, by the way. So his teaching was clearly authoritative, but it was also clearly disturbing. It caused an otherwise hidden demon to interrupt the service and question Jesus outright. Now, here's the interesting part of this. We're not really left to wonder what Jesus taught. We know exactly what he taught from his own words in just a few verses earlier. While you're in Mark chapter 1, you can go back to verses 14 and 15. This was Jesus's teaching. Listen to this, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is, this is the teaching, right? Verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let me say that again. The time has come. 
The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. It was this teaching, it was this message that Jesus presented in the synagogue. That teaching, though, might not seem very disturbing to us. But if it's not, you're looking at it the wrong way. Here is why this teaching caused such a tumultuous experience and prompted such an engaging question. Here it is. First, the first part, it was authoritative because it was urgent. There was an urgency here. Listen, listen to that. The time has come? Really? Right now? Mark actually gives us a key part to this urgency in, ch- in chapter 1, verse 14. We just read this, that Jesus actually didn't even begin teaching until, and here's the time marker, after the arrest of John the Baptist. It's a pretty significant time marker. In other words, the gospel message did not debut with celebration. It did not debut with fanfare. It actually debuted in the midst of turmoil. The gospel teaching of Jesus was born in adversity, not comfort. And Mark wrote this, this message, this time marker, this urgency is critical to the entirety of Jesus' teaching. The, the world was changing. It was rapidly changing. And Jesus would be the chief herald of this change. Time was of the essence. That's the first reason. The second reason why Jesus' teaching prompted such a question and such a disruptive service was because it was political. Now listen to that. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That's a political phrase. Really, the kingdom of God. You know, we like to think of Jesus as apolitical. That he's really not on anybody's side. Or we like to think that Jesus is really on our side wherever we land on the political spectrum. But either of those, thinking either of those ways would actually be wrong. He was clearly political, but he didn't choose the sides we think he chose. Jesus' teaching here about the kingdom of God was actually about the nearness, the nearness of the kingdom of God. And actually that phrase had some pretty serious political bite that we don't always see. Little teaching here, there is a word in there in that phrase, the kingdom of God is near. That word near in the original language of the New Testament was a word that actually referred to spatial nearness and not temporal nearness. In other words, this wasn't some kingdom in the clouds that's going to descend at some uncertain future point and rest on the earth like a lovely morning fog and giving us all the feels. Because that's what temporal nearness means. Temporal nearness means it means there's a time coming. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The word here actually means that the nearness of the kingdom of God is as real as you can touch. Because Jesus is the kingdom of God. He was the kingdom of God. And where he walked, the kingdom of God actually walked. And it had this porous boundary that was large enough to accept fishermen and even later despised tax collectors. He brought with him this really political message of social change capable of uniting mortal enemies. The businessmen, the fishermen, 
and the men who would take their money in the name of the evil empire, the tax collectors. And look, this authoritative, authoritative teaching was quite upsetting. Not only was it considered treasonous on the macro level, this, this was not going to stand in the Roman Empire, that there was another kingdom that would usurp its authority, but it was also upsetting on the micro level. These scribes, these local influencers, they didn't want to hear this from Jesus. He was no scribe. He and, and his entourage of fishermen were not exactly theological role models. And, and to the scribes, Jesus, Jesus didn't have the right to decide who God accepts and who he doesn't. Jesus, to the scribes, did not have the right to declare the arrival of the impending kingdom of God because the scribes represented that kingdom. This is a serious political message. So we've got the urgency and we've got the politics, but the third reason that this teaching was authoritative and disruptive and prompted this kind of question was that it demanded action. So in order, in order to talk about the action that it required, the action of repentance and belief, we finally need to talk about these scribes, these influencers. We've been on the fringe of this conversation, but I think it's time for us to talk about why they had so much power. So a little history, right? Capernaum was a city north of Jerusalem. It was about a 20-day journey on foot from Jerusalem. It was well outside of any direct religious oversight of the high priests in Jerusalem. So that left the local scribes to lead and govern by fiat. The scribes, they were writers, and they were interpreters of the Mosaic law. And what they wrote, they were literal writers. What they wrote, those words mattered. They were the gatekeepers of all of life because the Mosaic law dictated all of life. The scribes alone decided who was righteous and who was worthy. And this is really no small thing here. Being in or out or clean or unclean, those distinctions affected every aspect of the lives of the people that lived in Capernaum. It affected their worship, their social status, and even their income. These guys had power. They had influence. They were revered. People stood when they walked in the synagogue. People gave them their best seats. And if anyone, if anyone had the right to call people to repentance and belief, to speak in the language of commands and dictates. It was the scribes and not some startup from Nazareth. And that's why Jesus' teaching was so authoritative, so disruptive, and so convicting. It was urgent and it was political and it required action. So we've got that out of the way. Let's go back to this question now. What do you want with us, Jesus? So let's revisit this question by revisiting the scene in Mark chapter 1. So here, let's set it up. We've got Jesus and his disciples, ragtag group of guys. We've got a synagogue in Capernaum. All of this is happening on the Sabbath day. So Jesus, he's in sacred space. He's in the synagogue in sacred time on the Sabbath day. After confronted and convicted by Jesus' authoritative teaching, there's a man in the synagogue 
Actually, actually, the text says, and you, can, you need to find this and underline it, the text actually says it was their synagogue. That's a fairly big clue about what's happening here. A man in their synagogue asked this question, what do you want with us, Jesus? And this man that we discover is possessed by, by a demon. It's, it's important to note here, as we dissect this question, that this man should have never been in the synagogue as one with an unclean spirit. He was ritually unclean. He should have never been allowed into this sacred space. But the scribes, the influencers, the gatekeepers, they allowed him to attend. These were the rules that they made here. This was the culture that they formed. So much so that Mark called it their synagogue. They decided who was in and who was out, who was clean and who was unclean, and they, the scribes, decided that this man, this demon-possessed man, was clean. He should have been out, but he was allowed to be in. In other words, the scribes had transformed this sacred space into a place where evil could thrive where defiance to the reign and the kingdom of God was celebrated and protected even by a demon. That's the scene. That's what prompts this question. Now, if we're really honest, if we're really honest, we ask the very same question from the same sort of space. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm claiming that any of us here are demon-possessed. That's, that's not anywhere remotely what I'm thinking. But I think it's obvious that Jesus' teaching is still incredibly authoritative and incredibly convicting. It's as convicting today as it was then. And here's why. We don't like the urgency of Jesus' teaching. We have our schedule dominated by careers and by families and by obligations. We give most of our time to other people. And what little time we have left, we actually think is ours. We own that time. And we are offended when anyone else, even Jesus, speaks into what we claim as our own. We don't like the urgency of Jesus' teaching. We don't, we don't like the politics of Jesus' teaching. We may be Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or Independents or Socialists, and we assume that we've found our niche in the world of culture-shaping opinions, and perhaps we've planted our flags in places they're not supposed to be. We are to submit to the kingdom of God at the expense of all other political opinions. And we don't like the action demanded by Jesus' teaching. We've watched and perhaps even agreed with progressive ideas that strip us of shame without stripping us of sin. We've become beholden to a culture that defends and protects evil, and we willingly wear blinders to hide the easily discerned corruption that surrounds us. So you better believe it. I've asked this question, and you've asked this question. What do you want with us, Jesus? What do you want? What do you want with our time? What do you want with my politics? 
What do you want with my actions? And here is how Jesus answered this question, and this is such good, sweet news. You see, Jesus preached a very specific sort of repentance here, one that he himself actually represented. It was a repentance from the wholesale participation in a sycophantic social world determined by scribes and their flippant interpretation of the Mosaic law. This odd social order built by Jewish people in Jerusalem that was enforced and interpreted by scribes in Capernaum. This was a far cry from the generous mercy of God. Jesus and his authoritative teaching canceled that culture and he called others to do the same. So if he's the kingdom of God and he is near enough to be touched, then the middleman has become obsolete here. He's calling people to repent from a way of life filled with obligations and rules and gatekeepers and layers and labyrinths to God. So how in the world does he answer this question? He answered it with an act of compassion. He exorcised the demon. He freed the man of this evil influence. And you know what? People, people wonder if, if God hears the prayers of sinners. Well, he, he heard this prayer. He heard this question. And he answered it in the blink of an eye. Jesus answers this question with compassion, with liberation. So you want to know what Jesus wants with us? Freedom, freedom to live in the time has come moments where every breath could be our last before Jesus returns. He wants freedom for us to enjoy the reigning of a sovereign God and to declare our allegiance to him alone. And and he wants us to experience the freedom of repentance from a lifestyle that celebrates and protects evil. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus still answers this question with compassion, and he can liberate you too. Let's pray together, and then we'll be done. God, our Father, we trust the work of Jesus to renew us, to cast the evil from our lives, freeing us to live lives of worth and service and worship. Give us the peace that your mercies are new and your compassion is great. And give us the grace when we ask this question again. What do you want from us? You want us. Help us to have great peace and great faith in that. Thank you for Letting us celebrate you tonight, Lord, we are so grateful to be together, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody, to Uplift. Be sure to say hi to somebody on your way out, and pray over Friends Speak in the lobby. It's a good thing. We'll see you again next week.